This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. It's been a rough week here in the land of Israel. Hundreds of rockets have been launched at us from Gaza, and our Air Force has, of course, struck back. And the truth is, if we're interested in no longer having the same sad, unnecessary, ridiculous war every two, three years, there is a very, very clear formula for avoiding it. We need to take responsibility. We need to acknowledge and admit our mistakes in letting George W. Bush force us out of Gaza. We need to retake control of the territory. We need to rebuild the two dozen Jewish communities that were demolished. We need to dismantle Hamas, Islamic Jihad, whoever threatens us. And we need to offer Gazan Palestinians a better life with us together in a one-state reality between the river and the sea that grants everyone free movement, equal rights, and equal access to resources. I know it's easier said than done. And if you're interested in hearing the details of how I believe we can move forward together, you can go back and listen to pretty much most of the podcasts that I've put out. Uh, there have been many episodes where we do unpack the details of how I believe we can actually reconcile and end this conflict and move forward together. But uh, it doesn't look like it's going to be this week. In the meantime, you know, recently, uh, diaspora Palestinian activist Anas Salah from the Clash and Mash podcast had me as a guest on his podcast for some casual Jewish-Muslim dialogue that I think a lot of our listeners would find very interesting. So for this episode, I'm going to play for you a recording of that podcast. And uh, I'm actually very interested in hearing what you think of the episode. So um, after you listen to it, feel free to send me your feedback by going to visionmag.org and clicking contact on the menu bar up top. You could put for the subject next stage feedback and they'll make sure it gets to me. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I think a lot of people will experience it as a fresh approach, and I look forward to your feedback. And once again, this podcast is 100% listener-funded. We do need your support. So if you are interested in supporting our work, you can go to visionmag.org or visionmovement.org and click Donate on the menu bar up top. And if you're not in a position to support us financially, please leave us a positive rating and review share these episodes with your friends, you know, because that does go a long way in helping us get our message out. And if anybody's interested in checking out the show notes for this episode, you can do so by going to visionmag.org backslash the next stage, 9-7. Okay, so on this edition of Clash and Mesh, we have a guest, Yehuda. Yehuda, how are you doing, sir? How are you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm good. I got in contact with your work through Rafi Prinsky, because I was on his podcast, as you know. And uh, we were having a deep discussion about the state of Israel. What is the future of this state of Israel? Is it a future where Palestinians have equal rights and they could uh, practice their religion freely and they're equal under the law? Is it a state that's going to be like France, for example, Germany, America? or is it going to stay the status quo so we're here to question three questions that i want to ask you what is a jewish state number one number two where do the palestinians and the muslims fall into it number three 
where do you see the future between the Palestinians and the Israelis on everything, econo economically, politically, religiously, uh, both domestically in the Holy Land and outside the Holy Land? So the floor is yours. Okay, well, first of all, just so I understand, when you that third question, are you asking me what my ideal is or what do I think is possible? Where do I think things? We might could, be? you could give both. You could, I prefer, because me, when I started, when I started the podcast, I like to be a realist because mm -hmm. I like to see where things are actually going. Mm -hmm. um, I actually spoke with Rudy yesterday because he's in New York. I was able to meet him and we had the discussion. He has a vision, obviously, but I like to be uh, realistic and I also like to be, uh, which we'll call it, not hiding anything from the audience because we, We've been sold the last 30 years this pipe dream, the Oslo Accords. And it caused a lot of problems and, it, and a lot of people were let down by the Oslo Accords. Sure. Many things occurred, obviously. We had the assassination of Itzhak Rabin and then from there it went downhill. So what I want to tell my Muslim and Arab audience is the reality on the ground. How can it be changed to a better situation? Mm -hmm. And how can we make it better for everybody? because we have to face the facts on the ground, but at the same time, we have to be just. Mm -hmm. That's what the Palestinians have been saying for the last 75 years. We have to be just. So, so I'll share with you uh, my thoughts. First of all, your first question is, what is a Jewish state? Right? Yes. Now, uh, it's, it's uh, interesting to me that you ask that uh, in such a straightforward manner, because, and I, I think that's interesting only because my people haven't really figured out definitively what that means um you know we've had a state for almost 75 years that we say is a jewish state um but uh, i'm not sure that it's really the only um type of jewish state that could exist i think what we actually have now is really much more of a european style nation state with a lot of jewish decorations and i think that you know our, our really too Jewish for a lot of Palestinians and they're not Jewish enough for certain sectors of Israeli society who want a Jewish state. Um, mm -hmm. I would say that right now the Jewish character of the state of Israel is very hard but very shallow and uh, what I would like to see is for it to become soft and deep. Um, soft in that Palestinians or other non-Jews here don't even notice it's a Jewish state, but deep in that every, you know, uh, every Jew who's actually received like a real deep Jewish education would see the Jewishness everywhere in all the policies and all the institutions. So a question, when you say Jewishness, because I'm trying to understand this, right? Because I, I talked to many Israelis across the board from the left to the right, off camera, on camera, that the problem like for example, right? I'm getting even an example. Uh, when you look at the history of the the world, right? When you when you ask Muslims, you go to a Muslim, like what is an Islamic state? They're gonna tell you an Islamic state is a state, Muslim majority, run by Quran and Sunnah, not democracy, not communism, not a monarchy like we see today, not dictatorships. Run the Quran, Sunnah is the supreme law, not the constitution. Mm -hmm. So. That's what I tell people. That's the clear cut, the Quran and the Sunnah. When I talk to Jews, now it depends what kind of Jew you're talking to, right? Uh, when I talk to Jews on the left, they're gonna say, oh, a Jewish majority state. Mm -hmm. 
meaning a Jewish majority state that is a democrat democratic run and the Jews call the shots I'm like okay but the laws of Judaism is clear so when I think me personally when I think of a Jewish state right or you could I think of the state well not I wouldn't say Jewish state but a religious state I think of that the kingdom of David and Solomon mm-hmm. that kingdom mm-hmm. where God's law was the law obviously it wasn't the whim of the people and justice was the law of the land that's why the kingdom of Israel in the Quran it says they were a superpower because they followed God's law number one and number two they established justice on earth uh, the current state of Israel ever since the inception of it in my opinion because I researched the founders they weren't religious at all they were atheists even the the founder of the Zionist movement Peter Herzl wasn't religious himself so when Muslims look at this history and we see that what we our argument is basically okay these people say that God promised them the land but yet they don't believe in God which we, we see as a you know problem that's number one number two uh, with the current Israeli administration what I see is the Palestinians do not want to be ruled as second third or fourth class citizens we want to be free like our like the Israeli our Israeli counterparts uh, and we just don't want to handle the current status quo anymore the current administration unfortunately we've seen a lot of racism from them we've seen a lot of uh, discrimination that uh, tenfold against the Palestinians uh, when it comes to our freedom freedom of movement our access to Masjid al-Aqsa uh, politicians like Ben Gavir and then the other other guy I, I can't pronounce his name Stamanich or whatever his name is openly recently this is recently they came out and they, and they had they had a meeting in Paris saying oh we have to expand because he had like a map of Jordan or a part of Syria or whatever it was we have to expand and take over the whole Middle East or the Nile to the Euphrates or whatever their their uh, theories are their agenda is and how they treat Palestinians the violence against Palestinians have have risen because you have a radical radical elements uh of the Israeli political system that are pushing uh, for more discrimination policies against Palestinians so that's number one number two I think Israel is having a clash in itself today we see it very clear you have Jews who want to ban let's say for example homosexuality and they want to ban usury and they want to bring back gold and silver as legal tender into the market which in my opinion these things I agree with because our ancestors used gold and silver today the economy the world economy is a scam with the paper money and the printing and all that stuff so as a Muslim I agree with that actually but the what, what Muslims fear is if there is a Jewish state what kind of state is it going to be because we see a state of oppression for the past 75 years so my question is tell us more about this tug of war inside Israel what is going on right now so let's I, I want to just go back to your first question or your first three yeah. questions because they're good yeah. all your questions are really good questions and um i'm not even sure you appreciate how good they are in terms of the discussions they open up on our side um i'll say that i i think the first maybe point of confusion is that jews are not a religion okay um it's a mistake to think that there are Muslims, Christians, and Jews um, because Jews are actually, um, we, we predate a lot of these social constructs like race and religion and, and ethnicity and nationality, etc. We're more like a civilization, kind of like the Aztecs. We have a spiritual component to our identity. We have a territorial mm-hmm. component to our identity. We have a national component to our identity. 
We have a ritual component, a legal component, uh, but we're more than the sum of those parts. And, um, and, and therefore, um, a Jew being an atheist uh, doesn't become less of a Jew as a result. It's, it's not comparable to being a Muslim or like a Muslim who's an atheist is like, okay, well, how is he a Muslim? Um, a Jew is a Jew really because he's a descendant of the ancient Israelites. He's a descendant of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, right? Israel, mm -hmm. the children of Israel, right? Of the 12 mm -hmm. tribes of Israel. Like I, for example, I'm, I'm a Kohen. I'm from the tribe of Levi. Um, I'm also from uh, the tribe of Levi actually has four sub-tribes. Uh, Gershon, Merari, Kahati, and the Kohanim. The so these are like clans within the tribe. Right, right. The clans um, within the tribe. Okay. There, there are two tribes that have sub-tribes. Like Yosef has two sub-tribes, Ephraim and Menashe. Levi has four sub-tribes. I come okay. from um, the Kohanim. I'm a Kohen. That's why I'm called Yudah the Kohen. Uh, I'm a direct descendant of Aharon, the brother of Moshe. The Moses. Brother. Yeah. So his brother Aaron okay. my great, 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 great grandfather. So my question to you is this then, because uh, you said that basically the Jews are a civilization. So yeah. my question to you is this, because we have three requirements, right? Palestinians, if we took a DNA test, which in my opinion, this is something I discovered recently. If we take, if every Palestinian in the West Bank or in what is today Israel or Arabs in general, where they take a DNA test, they're going to find that their ancestors are Jewish. So my question is this, if religion doesn't play a role, let's say, like their religiosity. Well, it didn't play a role. I, I just began my explanation. I'm sorry. You, you ask great questions and they have long yeah. answers. Um, got Okay, okay. So I'll, I'll tell you what Continue. happened. I, because I think it's important. You know, I, I'm coming from the perspective that one of the um, biggest obstacles to us being able to resolve this conflict is the fact that we're not even we don't even know each other's stories like we've created fantasies like for example on the israeli side there's like a fantasy of what palestinians are that's very different from how palestinians experience themselves or, or know themselves mm -hmm. and it's true in reverse like i think in palestinian society there's not even an awareness of what jews are how jews see, see themselves where we come from what we're doing here etc so I, I a lot of the work that i try to do in the reconciliation work that i try to do between jews and palestinians in the west bank is to really help uh, both sides um engage with the narrative and identity of the other without feeling their own narratives or identities threatened and i think that's really important so that's think, actually a good yeah. good approach uh, and yeah, continue, sir. I'm sorry. So, so what happened to us is uh, our civil look. Two thousand years ago, give or take, we were ruled by Rome. The Romans ruled this country, and uh, we fought them to free our land. We lost. We fought them a few times. We lost, and uh, basically, um, by you know, by the year. Uh, you know, 135, when the last of our big revolts ended, um, the Romans decided to really, like, destroy us. And uh, and we basically, um, our Chachamim, uh, how do I say Chachamim in English? Rabbis, rabbis. Yeah, okay, our, our rabbis um, basically created a portable version of our civilization to take into exile with us. Now, mm -hmm. for roughly 1,700 years, Jews all over the world basically self-identified as Palestinian refugees. Like we organized our um, communal lives 
according to like a portable version of the civilization we left behind, usually isolated from the host populations, like Jews in France kind of lived in our ghettos as Jews, not really connected to French society. Same in Germany, same in, in Russia, Russia, Italy, wherever, wherever they go. And um, and and I'm going to focus a little bit on, on the Jews who are in Europe, the Jews who we would today call Ashkenazim, um, because, uh, first of all, because we were really, uh, my, my family are Ashkenazim, like my family were in Europe, we were really cast into the belly of the beast. Like, we basically, you know, we had fought Rome, it was like a war between us, to, us and Western civilization, and when they defeated us, they kind of took us in, it, you, really as slaves and gladiators. They brought us to Rome, and from Rome we ended up migrating to places like Russia and France and Germany, etc. But we, we basically lived uh, with, um, you know, under very uh, isolated from those from those uh, peoples and also very much at their mercy, often persecuted, sometimes for Christian reasons, sometimes for economic reasons, sometimes for racial reasons, uh, you know, it, it anything. evolved. Um, but we suffered many, many, many layers of traumatic persecution and colonization uh, mm -hmm. in Europe. Um, and what ended up happening around the time of the French Revolution was, um, especially in places like France and Germany, the governments offered the Jews inclusion. Uh, they offered the Jews whiteness. They offered the Jews an opportunity to become French and German. At And all we had to do was rebrand our own identities. So we saw ourselves as a refugee population that was really determined to go back to Jerusalem. Suddenly we became Germans with a religion called Judaism. This is really- I have a question though. I have a question for you. My question, don't you think that when the Jews became more inclusive, they had the goal to eventually use that inclusiveness to return to the Holy Land? Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, and also there's another part of the puzzle that's missing, in my opinion, Spain. When the mm. Muslims ruled Spain, mm. uh, and they protected the Jews for that for thousand four hundred thousand three hundred years to be specific. Right, until the but, Christians over. Yeah, but, but the Jews in Europe, since we're going to talk about them, the Ashkenazis, because there's this narrative in the Middle East. I want your take on it. What I learned from my studying is that you have uh, not Jew, so the Ashkenazis came from an area called the Dario Pass, which is in today Georgia. This is um, based on historical records. You could correct me if I'm wrong. But the most, basically the history behind this is the Muslims were in the South and you had the Byzantines in the North and both were pressuring the group in the middle to either become Muslim or Christian. Mm -hmm. And eventually as a middle ground, they became Jewish for political reasons. And then eventually their, their, their people were Jewish and then they started moving around to Russia. They had the Mongolians come in. They went into Russia, Western Europe, America, whatever have you. And that Technically speaking, they're converts. They're not. They're not like the original Beni Israel. So, what is your response to that? So, first of all, it's possible that there are specific individuals who became Jews. There's a way for thousands of years. There's. It's the truth is since the time of, since the time we left Egypt, there was a way for a non-Israelite to become an Israelite. There is a mm -hmm. naturalization process that allows an outsider to become an insider. Um, we've had that process for thousands of years in place, but the but where Ashkenazim actually come from is not that. Ashkenazim are the Jews who lived in 
Judea or Palestine during the Second Temple period, during the Greco-Roman period, fought mm -hmm. the Greeks, won, fought the Romans, lost, and were ultimately uh, brought as slaves and gladiators to Rome, and from there migrated to other parts of Europe. Um, okay. That's where Ashkenazim come from. Uh, in fact, there it, it's interesting. Um, you know, the you, you mentioned this before, but a lot of the Jews, the Judeans of that time, that the Romans didn't um, bring to Rome, the ones they let stay in Judea, uh, ultimately became the Palestinians. So um, what's interesting is there there was a um, uh, a study a few years ago I remember where they found that. Ashkenazi Jews and Palestinians share closer uh, a closer genetic link than Ashkenazi Jews and Mizrahi Jews. I think I read this read for terms of Israel. They did the, the DNA test, and it came back that we are related. No, no question about that. Uh, so but then Ashkenazi Jews. Yeah. It was specifically Ashkenazi Jews because the Ashkenazi Jews are essentially, um, and 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 Sephardi Jews are essentially the Jews who are in. The Holy Land during the Second Temple period, whereas what we call Mizrahi Jews, the Jews who lived in Egypt, Syria, Yemen, Yemen, Iraq, Persia, you know, Babylonia, when Afghanistan, I say Afghanistan, Pakistan, those are for the most part the Jews who did not come back during the Second Temple period. They had been exiled. I have a question for you because I was talking to Rudy recently, and Rudy mm -hmm. said something very interesting. I want your opinion on this. Rudy told me. When the tribes of Israel split, because he says the current people who are in Israel today, there's only two tribes right now, according to him, you could disagree with him. He's saying that the other uh, family members or cousins are in Afghanistan. Yeah. And that there was a myth or something about the how the descendants of Moses are in Afghanistan in a mountain or something. And then the, or they only come down when the water overflows. So anyway, my point is that they are the modern-day Pashtuns, and the Pashtuns were always monotheistic. They were never polytheistic. And so Pashtun, people, well, yeah. We, no, well, first of all, I think uh, Rudy's mistaken. The, the Jews in Israel today uh, are four tribes for the most part. Oh, four tribes. My bad. I don't know. So yeah. Shimon, Levi, and Benjamin, uh, plus, um, you know, recently, for example, there's the tribe of, there, there are Jews or Israelites who came back from, uh, let's say, the India-Burma border area, who identifies the tribe of Menashe. Many of them live in the town underneath my mountain. Um, so perhaps we also have the tribe of Menashe. Um, the Pashtun uh, in Afghanistan actually do have a long history of self-identifying as Israelites. Um, I think it's very possible that they were, that they are Israelites who, in the last couple centuries, adopted Islam. Okay, so my question to you is this then, mm -hmm. because you're saying one of the requirements, because let's look at the requirements to be in the Holy Land, right? From a Jewish state perspective, you well, have to be I, Jewish. I get into requirements, but I just tried to explain who we are. I mean, it's very important what you're saying here, because I also did, because um, this is how you, we're going to solve the conflict. We have to go back in time. We have to unravel the mistake, see where the mistake is. So we could give the package deal of the history. Mm -hmm. I also think on the Jewish side, they also need to educate themselves about the Arab history of the land. For example, I, I get into uh, discussions with Jews and some Jews, uh, some of them, unfortunately, Ashkenazi, they say that Hagar was 
this is God forbid, uh, that she that, that Ismail does not count because she and Ismail uh, are bastard and that she's a slave woman. That I have gotten this response from some of the not all Jews, but that's some. Not, that's not the way we understand it. I would I would tell you the opposite. I think it's very clear from the text of the Torah that mm -hmm. Abraham was very invested in Yishmael, like his that that was a son that he cared very much about. Um, mm -hmm. and, and even though there was a, a conflict within the family, conflict between Sarah and Hagar, and at a certain point even a conflict between Yishmael and Yitzchak. Uh, ultimately, that was resolved. Um, Yishmael and Yitzhak did make their peace. They buried their father Avraham together, um, and uh, Avraham even uh, remarried Hagar uh, after Sarah's death. Um, her new name was Keturah, uh, and they had several more children. Um, and it was actually Yitzhak who initiated them getting back together. It was uh, Avraham's son Yitzhak from Sarah, yes. who actually, uh, after his mother passed, went and found Hagar to bring back to his father because he knew that a man shouldn't be single. And Hagar was clearly a righteous woman. Uh, otherwise, Avram would have not remarried her. Meaning now that, I have a question for you because Rudy also told me that she was the princess in Egypt. She yes. was the princess of the Pharaoh, daughter of the Pharaoh. Okay, yes. interesting. So where is this coming from? Because some of, I maybe mean, could be ignorant. Some, some Jews that I deal with, they come with this concept. Even Christians even, they say that Hajar is like just a slave woman and that is oh, where does this come from yeah okay first of all um you know you have to understand that there is the the concept of slave or servant you know the or the word in hebrew is is evid or for a woman shifcha um it's not like the the type of slavery we think about in um the, the way slave america well, America for sure, or American slavery is much more like Greco-Roman slavery, where mm -hmm. where slaves are essentially inhuman. They're treated like they're inhuman, right? Mm -hmm. In in Hebrew culture, uh, somebody who is a sl what we'd call a slave is actually like a member of the family. Like mm. it's, it's a very different. It's it, it's a very different type of uh, position, a very different type of relationship. So the story of Hagar is that she was a princess of Egypt. Egypt was the most powerful empire uh, in the world at that at time. that time. Yes, the superpower of the world. Um, and her father, um, the the pharaoh, was so in awe of Avraham, who was essentially the representative of the Creator on Earth that he decided to give his daughter uh, as a quote-unquote slave to Abraham, to his family, um, because that would be a step up for her from being a princess in the mightiest empire in the world. Uh, and, mm. and, and So like in Arabic, for example, we have a saying called the Abdullah, which means the slave of God, which is a title that Muslims probably right. Right. have. Very similar to the Hebrew Ebed, right? Like, yeah. So, so yeah, so, so the idea is that she, she was somebody who joined the family as like, uh, you know, I, I think a good way to understand it is like uh, like a servant, but also like an apprentice, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like if you're familiar with Star Wars, right? Like a Padawan, <laughs> a Padawan would kind of be like, like a Hebrew slave. You know what I mean? Like that, understood. Okay. Like an apprentice. I'll, 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 yeah. Another that, thing I wanted to ask you is about the story of Musa salam, where Mount Sinai is, which I had a discussion with Rudy about this. I want your opinion on this. We, I watched a video on YouTube about this guy. He goes to Saudi Arabia. He says the real Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia. 
-hmm. Now, because if you read the Quran, the Torah, the Bible, and look at the map, right? When Moses split the Red Sea, there's only two locations he could have went to. Can't be the Holy Land because the children of Israel did not reach that area yet. So historians are debating, even in the Muslim community, that he was, this is recent, that we're talking about the last five, six years. Saudi Arabia, modern day, Saudi Arabia or Jordan? So my my question for you is the following. Did Moses, in short, travel to Mecca? Because there was a rabbi, he even described why Jews have cubes. You know those, I don't know what, if you know what I'm talking about. They were the, the, the cubes, yes. And it looks like the Kaaba. Okay. So the theory is, I don't know if this is true or not, you could go, we could go deep into it. Did, did you think Musa السلام, at one point with the children of Israel went to Mecca or were in anywhere in the, in, uh, in the Arab land? Not that I'm aware of, whether it was in the Sinai Desert, whether it was in Saudi Arabia. Uh, um, you know, my assumption is it, it was in the Sinai Desert, um, in the Sinai Peninsula, but I'm open to being proven wrong. Um, but in terms of the totofot, the, the tefillin, the head tefillin yeah. that, uh, that Jewish men wear, um, that's actually a symbol of our victory over Egypt because, uh, you know, the pharaoh would wear would wear something here, but it would be a snake. It would be like a cobra, uh, yeah. which, which is round, which is expressive of nature, right? Mm -hmm. and, and nature, you know, the ideology of ancient Egypt, it was like these like cycles of nature. There was no morality. There was no good and bad. Basically like today with uh, what they call evolution. Yeah, in capitalism today, and in capitalist society, you have this just like survival of the fittest, social Darwinism, the strong overcome the weak, the masters overcome the slaves, uh, yes. and that's just like the way the world worked. Um, we took that and we turned it into straight lines because a straight line is about purpose and clear moral objectives. And so we... Look in the ayah in the Quran, Surah Al-Mustaqim, the Sirat, stay on the right path. Right, so Correct. that's what we did. We, we When we defeated Egypt, or when our God defeated Egypt, we uh, had a symbol of that, which was actually taking what was on Paro's head and turning it into making it square to symbolize mm -hmm. that, we, that we have a different ideology. We have a different way of looking at the world, a different way of understanding uh, how the world works. And inside that square, we have passages from our Torah. We have like parchment inside uh, from the Torah. Okay. We also have one on our arm. So that, that, that's basically what, what that's about. Um, now, in terms of your question regarding Jewish state, uh, the, you know, the Torah that we received um, when we left Egypt at Sinai, wherever Sinai was, um, mm -hmm. th that, that Torah was not just a set of rules for how I as an individual can be righteous. It was also how we can create a holy society. Um, it's, you know, mm -hmm. like, because our mission is to be a mamlechet koanim v'goy kadosh, like a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're commanded mm -hmm. a holy nation. Um, that means there's no real separation between holiness and statecraft. state. Right? It means our business dealings have to be holy. Our marital relations have to be holy. Our army has to be holy, our economy has to be holy, and the Torah tells us how to create an economy that's just. And our Torah tells us how to how to treat the non-Jew in our society in a way that's just. Now, part of our problem is that the last time we had the opportunity to create uh, our own society was 2,000 years ago. So we mm -hmm. kind of look at these things 
and figure out how they apply in the 21st century. How can you actually create a holy society? Ultimately, look, we, we're, like I said before, we're a deeply colonized people. The Zionist movement, with all its flaws, did succeed at bringing us home, did succeed at reviving our ancient language, um, did succeed in a lot of, in accomplishing a lot of the things that we had been um, deeply wanting for thousands of years, but it was also imperfect and it also created a lot of injustices for other people who were here and that needs to be corrected. Um, yeah, and, and I think that now, but, but I, I understand that when I'm talking about my own people's liberation, it's a step-by-step -step process. Those people, those the Zionists who, who actually achieved those things, weren't necessarily thinking about creating a, a holy state or even a revolutionary state. But as far as, you know, but I, I'll say to their credit, there was another group that did not identify as Zionists um, that fought the British to free our land. And um, and they were very much looking for Israel to become a revolutionary state that sides with the oppressed of the world against the oppressors of the world. You know, mm. when the when the Algerians fought for their freedom against the French, the Zionist government of Israel supported the French. But the group in Israel, the, it was called the Lehi, the Fighters for the Freedom of Israel, that had fought the British, um, their leader, Nathan Yellen Moore, um, he started the Israeli Committee for a Free Algeria. He was very much of the belief that Israel needs to be an organic part of the Semitic region, that we need to create like a block with all of the states around us against both U.S. and Soviet imperialism in the region, um, that, that Israel should be taking a leadership role in protecting the entire Middle East from, from Western aggression. And unfortunately, the, the people who took over the country, even though his group is the group that forced the British to leave, the Zionists who actually took power ultimately allied the state of Israel with the Western powers. So as we were saying earlier, right, we were talking about the religious Jewish state, how it should be run according to the, the you, according to the Jewish religion, how it should be run by the Torah and that Israel, that they fought for the independence and they tried to help Algeria, but the people who are empowered, the, the European, let's call them European Jews for, you know, for, to simplify it, they wanted to push it to be in the Western orbit instead of the environment they were in, which is a Semitic orbit. We could say the Zionists or the labor Zionists really do, you know, I mean, in Israel, they're called the left, which is really not, that doesn't make any sense. But what's historically called the left in Israel are, are the ones who, who want Israel to be part of the West, whereas what's often called the right in Israel are those who are looking for more of a Jewish state and are mostly coming from other parts of the Middle East. Um, I mean, mostly Mizrahi Jews, Jews more connected to Torah, Haredim, uh, national religious, um, whereas the kind of more westernized Ashkenazi and, and often more powerful and more wealthy Jews are what we call the left here. It's, it's weird. It doesn't really make sense. But um, yeah, they wanted Israel to be connected to France at that time. Um, you know, we could argue that, uh, you know, we were getting our weapons from France and that's, you know, what they saw as like the number one priority. I get it. But the Jews who actually fought to drive the British out of Palestine and and have uh, an independent state wanted to see Israel aligned with the Algerians, not with the French. So that's what happened then. 
but again, the idea was that Israel be a revolutionary state that be allied and unified with its neighbors and on the side of the oppressed everywhere. That's not what happened. That's not what we ended up becoming, but maybe it's not too late. Um, but I think that obviously to, to really think about Israel as a revolutionary state that stands up for the oppressed, um, we would have to really start with the oppressed within our borders. And we'd have to really take a look at the Palestinian question and ask ourselves an important question from a Jewish perspective, what is the ideal role of somebody who is not Jewish in our land? Uh, now, what's interesting, now I'll, I'll tell you something that you'll probably find very interesting. You know, historically mm. speaking, there was a group of people that were our allies that were not us. Uh, they're called the Kenim, the Kenites, okay? They Kenanites. Were, no, 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 not Canaanites, Kenites. Two different oh, okay. The Kenites were for the most part the descendants of Yitro, who was the father-in-law of Moshe, of Moses. Mm -hmm. It's in the Quran, yes. Right. So yeah. these, these guys were um, were living in our land with us, and a population that were allied to us, but they were not us. They didn't become Israelites. They remained Kenite. Um, mm -hmm. And one of them actually becomes a hero of Jewish history. Her name is Yael. Uh, she actually killed the Canaanite general Sisera. Um, it's in the Book of Judges, four. And um, what what ends up happening uh, is, she's, even though she's not uh, an Israelite, she becomes a hero of our history to the point that to this day, three thousand years later, we're still naming our daughters after her. Uh, now, a, an interesting anecdote: a lot of people don't know there was a translation of our Torah, an Aramaic which used to be the major language of the region. There was an Aramaic mm -hmm. translation of our Torah around the first century. Uh, it was called the Targum Onkelos. And this was like the Aramaic translation of our Torah. Yemenite Jews still uh, recite it after the Hebrew Torah in their synagogues every Shabbat. Um, and in the, in the, Yemen, in, in the Aramaic um, translation, every time these people are mentioned, our allies, our non-Jewish allies are mentioned in Aramaic. They're referred to as either Muslim or Islamic, and this mm -hmm. is this is again first century. Okay, so I I suspect that if uh, Muhammad had access to our Torah, it would have been in Aramaic because that was the language that really spoke. And I suspect mm -hmm. that when when he started Islam, it was. Um, really to create the movement of righteous Gentiles, the movement that would bring not just the Torah to the people of Israel, but the Torah to the whole world, God's word to the whole world. Well, there's two things we need to unpack here, right? So we have to, Prophet Muhammad was illiterate, he did not know how to read or write. That's the first thing. The second thing is, there was, if you look at the history, all the prophets that were sent, I would say 85% of the prophets were sent to the children of Israel, Bani Israel. And then you had some Arab prophets like Hud and Saleh, which I don't know if they're mentioned in the Torah, but they're mentioned in the Quran. Shu'ib, which is in English, Jethro, is mentioned in the uh, Quran as well, or in, also in the Bible and the Torah. I'm not sure about that. But Muhammad came, Islam came to spread all over the world. Muhammad came to bring the Arabs back to monotheism. Mm -hmm. Just like how the Jews, for example, for example, one of your videos that you did with Paul, I think, talked about the Maccabee Rebellion. Why did it happen? 
because the Maccabees saw the people going astray, taking in Greek culture, poly, uh, what they call it, uh, polytheism. They built a statue on the Temple Mount of Zeus, which got out of hand, and they're basically getting into Greek culture. The Arabs, unfortunately, fell in the same trap. Let's say they created their own idols around the Kaaba. And then Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam came to number one, destroy the idols and number two, bring back righteousness because the Arabs are doing a lot of messed up things in their own land. Right. And then when Islam started spreading, uh, Islam, we say, we call it the seal, the last religion and Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is the seal of the prophets. Islam was its own civilization at the end of the day, but uh, the key of Islam is number one, spread justice on the earth and to basically everyone has their rights and to spread Islam basically. But the thing that you know, I think we disagree with a little bit, because you said that because we, we're not foreigners, the Arabs and the Palestinians, we're not foreigners. We're, this is also our land as well, and I feel that some Israelis they don't see it that way for whatever reason, uh, they, whatever lens they're looking at. And we have to understand that uh, in order for us to cooperate with each other in this land, there has to be understanding so for example when the muslims went into jerusalem under Umar bin Khattab, they allowed the jews to come back because that was the just thing to do that's that's justice even though the christians didn't want it to happen for whatever reason because they have beef with the jews over jesus or whatever they still do yeah and then this was and then you had the crusades which we all know what happened during that time and then when Salah Hadim came back he repeated the precedent of bringing the jews back and if you look at the whole Middle East, we're talking about Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, uh, Syria, Morocco, Spain. When if every time the Muslims ruled in these lands, the Jews were protected. Mm -hmm. but the Jews had better rights. And I, even the Hebrew University said this. But if you look at the current state of Israel today, right? How what Palestinians envision, they don't envision the kingdom of Solomon or David. They envision... This, these, these people that came, I'm thinking of the Palestinian perspective, just how they think. People came from outside, they built settlements on our land with the help of the British. And then when the British left, with the backing of the West, they destroyed the towns, cities and villages and the Palestinians were kicked out and became refugees. And then for the last 75 years, you know what's happened with the wars and the expansion, whether it's in Lebanon, in Syria, in the West Bank, in Gaza, wherever you end, if you look at the uh, politics Israel was involved in. Israel always sided with the West, whether it was the destruction of Iraq, the destruction of Syria, Libya, whatever we could go on for hours talking about it. I think Israel can always turn back. God always gives the people time to turn back and to go to the truth. But I think today it's going to be very difficult for Israel to assimilate itself into the Middle East because of the damage that was done. Not only that, in my opinion, Israel is in danger because the, for, for the last 75 years, the West has been backing up Israel because of what we could, we could argue why, the lobbying, the, the strategic alliance, whatever you want to call it. But we see the West is slowly falling and phasing out of the, of the international game. And the countries in the East are now rising. Russia, China, Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, and maybe Afghanistan. So I think Israel is in trouble. Why? Because Israel, according to us, the Muslim like Ummah, they have sided with the bullies. They have sided with France and America and England. You brought up Algeria. Israel helped Algeria in exchange and they helped also France and England during the Suez crisis. Mm -hmm. And Israel was kind of a pawn in yeah. a way for the West. And now that the West is slowly phasing out, my question, who's going to protect Israel now? So 
Israel is in trouble and Israel needs to understand that they're not in Europe. They're not in America. They are in the Middle East. Let's look at the neighborhood around them. And I think they're slowly realizing this, the people anyway, but the government and the military, they're not realizing it for whatever reason. And they have to understand that if they want, if Israel has will, will stay for, let's say, the next 75 years or 100 years, they have to be a just nation and follow their books because at the end of the day, God is the one who's going to stay the superpower, not America, not France, not yeah. England, not Germany. That's, and that's, I think some Israelis don't get it. That's exactly yeah. it. Look, Israel, today, Israel's ruling class wants to be part of the West and sees the West as the most... Uh, morally advanced civilization that we should emulate and be like etc but it's not it's corrupt and it's as you said falling just like the roman empire fell you know the current empires fall but at the end of the day it is the creator who took us out of egypt and gave us the torah who protects us and who guides us and the people of israel not the ruling class but the people of israel know that and want that and and they're looking to live that way um, again, you know, it, it's varying degrees of personal commitment. I'm not talking about uh, people being coerced to behave this way or that way, uh, but I'm saying that in general, you know, people want to feel close to the Torah. People want to feel close to the Creator. And I think that look, my, my understanding in terms of the relationship we could have, th there's, two, there's two important conversations. There's a conversation about the relationship between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And there's a conversation about the relationship between Israel and the Islamic world. I think those are two very important conversations. Um, in terms of Israel and the Palestinians, I believe that the correct solution, the most just solution, is a one-state solution that is, um, as I said, deeply Jewish yet softly Jewish, and everybody's equal. Everybody has equal rights, everybody has equal access, um, but we, the 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 Jews will subjectively experience it as a very deeply Jewish state and uh, Palestinians and even Jews that don't have a Jewish education would just see it as a democratic society where everybody's equal and everything's functioning very well. Um, meaning, for example, if, if we're living in Jerusalem and your dog uh, damages my bicycle and we go to court and the judge rules according to um, the Torah's position on what is justice mm. in that situation, um, unless you know that that's the Torah's position, you wouldn't know that he just ruled according to the Torah. Um, right now, today, a judge in Jerusalem might rule according to British law. Now, why would we be, why would judges in Jerusalem rule according to British law? You know, like <laughs> we have our own, we, for, for many, many, many centuries, our wisest, most righteous leaders developed a conception of justice for when one person's property damages another person's property and what is justice in that situation so that's not forcing people to be religious again i want to make that clear the the goal here is not to coerce people's behavior or force lifestyles or choices on people they're not ready for but as a society we want to be holy as a society we want to be just um that... i have a question on that by the way sure yeah, my question is because here's the problem in israel i see in israel today israel okay because the west right now my friend i live in the west it's crazy we have drag queen shows in libraries it's a jungle out here I'm telling you it's a jungle uh what the, what israel needs to uh, figure out is are they going to be a jewish state 100 percent following because a jewish democracy in my opinion doesn't make sense it's like saying islamic democracy you either you rule by the laws of god 
or you don't rule by the rules of God, you go by your whims. So yeah, I think that's what Israel's going through right now. That's number one. Number two, we're talking about the relationship with the Palestinians and Muslim world. This land, the Holy Land, is a waqif according to the Muslim world. This is a holy land, and Masjid al-Aqsa is holy, and it's Islam's third holy site. And we have a lot of Muslims in the Holy Land. Now, when you see, the Muslim world is going to be very, it's going to be very tricky because the Muslim world are going to look at this. They're going to be like, okay, Israel's going to rule with the Torah and the Jewish law on our Palestinian brethren. And the Palestinians, they want to live based on the Sharia law. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's some similarities here and there, mm-hmm. but uh, the Muslim world will look at Israel because of the recent experience of 75 years of, of you could say, a conflict, occupation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the amount of oppression, and they're not going. It's not. They're not gonna. It's not gonna be easy to convince them because of how much destruction and conflict and bloodshed there was. Number one. Number two. You're saying one-state solution. Okay, to do this one-state solution is going to be difficult. Why? Because if you look at the math, let's do the math. You have 2 million Palestinians in Gaza, 3 million in the West Bank, 2 million inside Israel proper. Okay, so if you do the math, 2 plus 3, four, uh, two plus three 5 million plus 2, 7 million Palestinians. I don't think the Israeli intelligence or the government or the army or the people will accept that because guess what? The Arabs are going to be the majority. It's not going to work because of the, the the security threat let me um, answer your first and your third question first and then i'll get to your okay, continue. so your first question was about democracy your third question was about demography and your second question was about our relationship with islam which we'll just shelve for a second yeah. um, so first of all when i say democracy i i know that there are a lot of people in israel who think of democracy as like a synonym for westernization but when I say democracy, what I mean is a system that empowers people to influence the structures they live under. Um, mm-hmm. That's important to me. And I think the Torah actually presents us. It's actually Yitro, Jethro, who presents us with a model of participatory democracy that I think can work and I think can make demography irrelevant. Meaning instead of voting for somebody once every four years and then having him lie to you and betray you and <laughs> on the side with the corporations that fund his campaign and whatever, instead of doing that every four years like morons, I think what we can do is get together every week. Every week. This is basically the model of democracy that, that is laid out for us. Um, it's a participatory democracy. We get together, um, let's say, uh, you know, 10 people in a neighborhood get together. They appoint one person, their captain of 10. Uh, he goes to a second meeting with nine other captains of 10 from different neighborhoods. And then somebody becomes a captain of hundreds, right? And then he goes to a third meeting with nine other captains of hundreds from different towns. And then he becomes, mm-hmm. say, a member of Knesset, a member of parliament, right? And he mm-hmm. represents all the people that he was in the meeting with, right? Mm -hmm. But if he doesn't, if he betrays them, they don't vote him out in four years. They recall him the next week. He can still be part of the meeting, but he's no longer the captain. He's no longer representing them because he can't be trusted, okay? Um, I think we we could implement something like that, which would be democratic, really democratic, really empower people. um, And everybody, whether they be Jew or Palestinian, can have the ability to join a meeting, to be part of this. Nobody has to. If somebody would prefer to uh, stay home and watch TV, play with their kids, sure. 
Um, but there's no there, there. But I think the idea of representative democracy, as it's understood in the West, that you know you have two candidates who are usually the same guy with the same background, with the same uh, one has R, the other one has D. That's it. <laughs> right, right, and and they're and they're being funded by the same corporations and lobbyists to do the same thing. Ultimately, okay, they they differ a little bit on this issue that everybody's screaming about. But like on everything else, they're the same. On the economy, they're the same. On the wars, they're the same. On the, you know, uh, on on the issue on healthcare, they're the same. Like um, you know, so I, I think that uh, that we can do better. So that model of democracy, I think, would actually be a Jewish model of democracy that would make our society a holy society, and people would really have influence over the the structures they live under. I think it also makes demography irrelevant, although I will tell you the Haredi Jews, the Jews like with the black hats, they're the fastest growing population between the river and the sea. Um, Palestinians and Jews like me are kind of tied for second place. So I think that either way, the, the country is going through uh, many tumultuous changes. I think one thing we're seeing now with these like protests against the judicial reforms here is that the, um, the old ruling class, basically kind of like the westernized, um, like Tel Aviv, you know, we want Israel to be a, um, an outpost of Western civilization in the Middle East they're losing power just because they didn't have enough kids, just because they're too westernized. So mm -hmm. so that, that's a lot of what's going on in Israeli society. And I get from the outside, it doesn't necessarily look good for Palestinians because the political representatives of the Jews who are becoming stronger uh, don't like Palestinians. They see the Palestinians as the enemy. They see the Arabs as the enemy. Um, so it's hard to see in the moment how these guys and their voters can actually take us somewhere better. But I think ultimately Israel's in the middle of a very messy transition period that will lead us somewhere better and will bring us closer to our true identity and to our roots and enable better relations with Palestinians and with our neighbors. But we're not there yet. And I don't expect it to come from these specific political figures. Meaning I don't expect it yeah. to come from these individuals, but I think that there is a, a shift taking place and it's important that we kind of keep our finger on the pulse of where Israeli society is going and where Palestinian society is going. We have to, you know, when we talk about what can work, what can't work, it's not enough to just look at Israelis and Palestinians as they are now. We need to look at the trajectories of both societies and how we can kind of like move forward together. Um, in, in terms of our relationship with the Islamic world, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how I see it and I'll ask you a question. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, my understanding is our ancestor Avraham had two missions in his life. The mm -hmm. first mission was to spread knowledge and loyalty to the Creator. Knowledge mm -hmm. and loyalty to the Creator. That was his mission and he was a very successful uh, traveling preacher, uh, you know, and what made Avraham different from the, from the Hebrews who came before him is that he had a zero tolerance policy when it came to idolatry. That when it came to idolatry, he had a very militant posture. And therefore the creator chose him to create a nation, to be the progenitor of a special nation. And he was given a second mission to go to a very specific country and to create a nation that would exist in that country and create a holy society there. Now, his two eldest sons, Yishmael and Yitzhak basically inherited those two missions. Yishmael inherited the first mission. And, mm -hmm. you know, even though, as you said, you know, the 
the Arab peoples lost that mission. Muhammad returned it to them. Uh, and Yitzchak, my ancestor, inherited the second mission. And ultimately, I see these two missions as a meant to exist in partnership. That Israel is meant to be a holy nation working in partnership with a global Islamic movement that is able to bring humanity to knowledge of the Creator and loyalty to the Creator. Um, and, and that's how I would like to eventually see things go. Um, now, we're not there yet. None of us are there yet. Uh, like, I don't know if we're ready for that, but that's where I'd like to see things ultimately uh, uh, move towards. Now, the question is, if the people of Israel, the children of Israel, Banu Israel, not Yehud, we're Banu Israel, like we're the children of Israel back on the stage of history, if we mm -hmm. are living in our land according to the Torah, not according to the Quran, mm -hmm. the Torah, mm -hmm. uh, you know, running our society according to justice as we understand it in our Torah, according to the Sharia that was given to us, mm -hmm. will be considered Muslim by the Muslim world. Because, okay, here's the thing. The Muslim world, because according to the yearbooks of Torah, the, the name, I don't know if you know the controversy, there's a name called Muhammadin, but meaning Muhammad is mentioned in the Torah. Now, the Muslims, they are the last religion. We cannot classify the Jews as Muslim, but we could we classify them as Ahlul Kitab, the Bani Israel, Ahlul Kitab, people of the book, because they follow a different tradition. We, we wouldn't consider you Muslim, but we, we could consider you a just nation, a nation we can work with. Okay. Because if because if you follow, if Israel were to, were to be run, how Solomon and David ran that nation, then I don't see why the Muslim world will have, will have problems with Israel. The problem is Israel is run, the, the way Israel has been run, the, ran the last 75 years, ever since God gave, we could say not what, we could say the British or, or whoever you want to talk to, ever since God gave him back the opportunity, mm -hmm. let's say, let's say, call it an opportunity, to govern this land, they have done, in my opinion, some bad things. Okay. That they need to be corrected. Okay. And every nation, if a nation it wants to stay as a power, God already gave the rules for that. You have to stay a just nation. And Israel has to look at their history. Why did the why were the Babylonians allowed to destroy the state of Israel? Why was the Roman Empire allowed to destroy the state of Israel? Because the children of Israel went astray. Same thing with the Muslim world. If you look at the Muslim world, the last let's say 1400 years, the reason why Muslims are where we're at today is because we do not follow the Sharia law, we do not follow the Quran. We have a lot of oppressors in our uh, seats of power and who on people who are not doing their duties as Muslims right now. So why, why, what my message to the Israeli people and Israeli government is very clear, is if they want, if the, in order for there to be peace in the Middle East, there has to be justice in the Middle East. Meaning, when a Palestinian goes and kills an Israeli, they have to be held accountable. When an Israeli goes and they burn a, a, a family alive, they have to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. There are some Israeli settlers, they do crimes and they're not held accountable. And that's why we see the violence today. That's number one. And number two, in the West Bank right now, we have separate roads. We have separate, there, there, are, there has been swaths of land that's, that has been taken, that, that the Palestinians have deeds to, and that in the court of law, there has to be either compensation or there has to be, a, that land has to be returned because we're going to be just here. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, I think if justice is served, how 
because this, at, at the end, just, uh, God says to be just. Doesn't matter from a Jewish perspective, Islamic perspective, however you coin it or you look at it, justice is justice. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, 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 Israel, which is following or is following the rubric of Suleiman or they, they, they Prophet David, how they did it, how they lived 100%, no adding or subtracting. In my opinion, I think there will be peace because the Israelis will follow the original message. The problem today is that the Israelis have adopted the secular Western arrogance and that's why they're in this pickle right now in the Middle East. They have to understand it. Yeah. I want you to know something. Yeah. If the if the Jews who live in the West Bank yes. hear what you're saying, and I'm talking about the not look, the Jews in the West Bank are not monolithic, they're different types. But let's yes. say the most violent, let's say the most violent Jews who live in the West yes. Bank, um, who are if they heard what you were saying right now they would be interested in making an alliance with you because what you're basically saying they, that's what they want those jews the most extreme jews living in the west bank are interested in basically the kingdom of david and solomon that's what they want okay they, but then that what would happen is now yeah, this is what they're going to get perception, here, here's the problem their yeah. perception is that the palestinians or the arabs are the enemies of israel Right? That's their perception. These are the enemies of Israel. And therefore, they ask themselves, well, what would David do to the enemies of Israel if he were alive today? Right? And and that's how they behave. That, that's what's going on here. So what, what I try to do in my work, because a lot of my work is bringing these extreme West Bank Jews to be in dialogue with Palestinian neighbors, um, what I try to do is change the role that we play in each other's stories. The, the problem isn't the identity or the mentality or the desires or aspirations of the extremist Jews living in the West Bank. The problem is that he perceives the Palestinian as his enemy. If the Palestinian is not his enemy, then, then we could actually have a good partnership. And well, I have a question. The sure. question is, you have people who are evicted from their houses in Hebron, for example. For example, I'll use Hebron as an example. No. And they're evicted and we have like the Hebron massacre and we have like a lot of bad things that are happening in Hebron today. Like Hebron is the most radical example. Mm -hmm. And people have been kicking, kicked out of their houses and Israeli settlers take their houses. In that just country, these Palestinians would, get, would take their houses back. Just like, for example, in Iraq or in Syria or in Algeria, Jews have the right to go back to their property. I don't think Jews are going to return to those countries because we're in our country and that's where we're meant to be. But uh, look, my my rabbis and actually interestingly enough the rabbi harav tzvi yehuda Cohen cook who is really considered the spiritual leader of the jewish drive to create communities in the west bank was very openly opposed to taking any palestinian private property his position was we don't do that we cannot do that okay that's the spiritual leader of the i'd say what we call the ideological West Bank Jews. Now, there are some problems in terms of how the state of Israel and the courts of Israel have, in many different instances, changed the definition of property rights. And, and there's been all sorts of weird things going on on our end um, that Palestinians aren't really responsible for, to be fair. Like, it's really an internal issue that Palestinians have been hurt by. But it's not, it's, in any case, my position is we shouldn't take anybody's property and we shouldn't build on anybody else's land. 
but I also acknowledge that many things happened. We've we've hurt each other in many different ways in the last century. Um, it's true that Israel has more power. The power dynamics favor us. We're on top, which means I think it's our role to make the first move towards building trust. But that being said, I think, again, this is not a reason for not trying, but I just wanted to be very clear what the, what the challenge is. A lot of the Jews who are now in their 20s and 30s here grew up during the Second Intifada, where they mm -hmm. experienced Palestinians as the enemy, drive-by shootings, bus bombings, suicide bombings, etc. These are things, and again, the majority of people on the Israeli side, not just in the West Bank, in Tel Aviv, in Netanya, and Haifa also, don't understand the story from the Palestinian perspective. That's why you have all these like pro-Israel organizations on social media, you know, criticizing Palestinians for handing out candy when, uh, you know, when, when a Palestinian kills a Jew. I understand. I understand that when a Palestinian kills a Jew, he really believes he's punching up. He really believes he's drawing the blood of his oppressor. And if I was him, I might hand out candy too. Like, I get it. I don't criticize that. But at the same time, um, I understand that all these misunderstandings result from us really, really, really not understanding each other. And whether we want to make peace or we want to win, we have to be willing to engage the identity, the story, the narrative of the other without fear. Because uh, if we don't do that, and even if we're committed to war, if we don't understand the other as the other understands himself, we're just going to be fighting our fantasy of who the other is and engaging in very counterproductive methods of struggle, both of us. And that's what we're doing. Also, you know, we're, also we're, actions need to be taken. Actions need to be taken to secure a peace. And that starts with being just with everybody. You know, okay. yeah, I agree. I, I agree. That and we, you said you know. the private property. I agree with you that you, there are Jews out there. They don't want to take private property, but that has been done. For example, in Hebron, it's been done. Where I live, it's been done. And unfortunately, let's be honest, the settlers are not leaving. These people are, they built these communities. They are not leaving the West Bank. Where, where do you live? Ramallah, Ramallah. Oh, you're from Ramallah. So, so you have settlements around there called Ofra, Beit Il, all those settlements, right? Oh, I, live, I live very close to Ramallah. I live on a mountain very close to Ramallah. Oh, so, you, so, you, so you've seen the expansion in the last 30 years and the, they're not going anywhere. So the solution is very clear, either compensation or they have to have a deed to the land or something it has to be done because because the, 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 these grudges are going to stay because when injustice is done and it's not resolved immediately, it will fester and there will be a, it will lead, become like the 2000. Mm -hmm. And I fear that where everything where we're headed right now is that right now. Okay. We see it in the West Bank because you brought up, for example, during, during the second intifada. But yeah, I, I think, I, I think again, in I, I'm I'm against personally. I'm against any house demolitions, whether it's Palestinian homes or Jewish homes. Um, I don't I don't like forcibly evicting people from their homes, no matter who they are. Um, so in a situation where you show me that a Jew is living on property that's legally owned by Palestinians, I would probably favor uh, financial compensation in that situation because i unless the jew is saying oh I'm, I'm willing to move or whatever because i just think that that's very problematic if if we had more time i see we have four minutes left um yeah <laughs> if we and, and the truth is it's very late here but but if we had if we had more time um i would want to talk about 
ways that we could theoretically address uh, refugee issues. We could I, do this in the next episode, in my opinion, because in my opinion, if you're tired, you guys are like six hours ahead. I, I appreciate Here's, that. Um, but, but, I, but I think, yes, I, I think you kept saying this, and I want to just make sure that it's clear I agree with you, that yeah. there is no peace without justice. And we need to, you know, I, I got to be honest, I'm, I'm now speaking on behalf of my people. We, we've been through a lot of really traumatic persecution for for 2000 years we have power for the first time in a long time and we need to learn how to use it justly and that's the problem. we're you know we're now i think entering into adulthood you could say that in 1948 we were like babies and in 19 uh, in the 1980s and 90s we were like teenagers right and the oslo process was a lie the two-state paradigm is a lie um, and it was forced on us by the outside. It was forced by the Americans and the Europeans. We're not going to do that. We're not going to divide the land. The only solution, uh, and, and we're, listen, we have an obligation. The, the two commandments that the Creator gave to Avraham and to Yitzchak and to Yaakov were basically Brit Milah, circumcision, and to possess the land. We're commanded to possess the land. The question is, can we do that in a way that is just and fair and good for everybody but we're not going to leave we're not going to retreat um the question is can our can our society as you said can israeli society transform into something that is reminiscent of the kingdoms of david and solomon in the 21st century can palestinians be included in a way that is good for them can we have justice in the land for every human being and can we be allied with the muslim world around us in trying to bring the word of the creator to all of humanity i like, like i told you man i'm all for that but at the same time with these issues get resolved israel is going to stay for a long time but if these issues do not get resolved i this is a, the quran is very clear about it that israel might get destroyed if it does not stay on the right path we're trying to go on the right path but it's a process you know i i don't want to ask you to be patient with us because i don't think that's fair it doesn't feel right for me to ask a Palestinian to be patient until we get it together, until we become what we're supposed to be, because in the meantime, people are suffering. But the truth is, Israel is in a process of transformation, and we're going from a caterpillar to a butterfly. The Zionism that you've seen, the state of Israel that you've seen until now is the caterpillar. Now we need to turn into the butterfly, and I'm hoping that the butterfly will be a lot better for Palestinians than the caterpillar. If it is, then we Palestinians will put down their arms, and as long as justice is served, Palestinians will put down their arms, and they will cooperate with Israel. But again, God puts a warning in all His scriptures. Every empire, whether it's Muslim, Jewish, Christian, they fall because they're unjust, and they go astray and become arrogant. If Israel becomes like the kingdom of Suleiman and David, I think we'll be fine. We'll be good. For sure. All right, man. I'll have you on the next episode, inshallah. After Ramadan, after Ramadan, I should have you on to talk about solutions and how we could build. Mm -hmm. uh, come back. All right, yeah. Thank you. Thank you.